listening to the White Oak Houston podcast, the official podcast of White Oak Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. White Oak exists to help people come alive to the wonder of the gospel and fully follow Jesus. For more information, please visit us online at whiteoakchurch.net. ever been a better song written in the history of the universe to prepare us for this text this morning and how we as a church can love each other than that song we just said and build my life it says and lead me in your love to those around me I will build my life upon not my love not the world's love but the love of Jesus and that's what Paul writes to the church in Rome in Romans 12 verses 9 through 13 Paul says in verse 9, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. May God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated at this time. Well, good morning, church. What a wonderful time of worship this morning in this new fun environment. AC went out last night if you weren't here. James already kind of gave you an overview, um, but uh, we had a great team that was able to make this place a reality, and it's like really awesome. And so if you're new and visiting, I'm glad you're here. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and I'm honored to open up our scripture for us this morning. And if it's okay with you, I'd like to uh, preach a sermon entitled, Practice Makes Progress. I hate the saying that practice makes perfect because it's just not true in this life, Right? Practice doesn't make perfect, practice makes progress. And that's the aim of the sermon this morning. And that's what Paul writes to the church in Rome. He's hoping they make progress in their love for one another. When I was probably 14 years old, there was a song lyric and a song I was listening to that I heard, and it has stuck with me for uh, the past 15, 20 years. And to be honest with you, I didn't even like the song. Um, It's by a band named Switchfoot, who I do like. I do like the band, but I didn't like the song. But the lyric just stuck with me. I don't know what it was. I don't know why certain things stick with you. I think it because it resonates with something inside of you. And this is the lyric, and maybe you've heard it. The song says, this is your life. Are you who you want to be? This is your life. Are you who you want to be? And I think the reason why that song has stuck with me all these years is because it was one of the first times in my life where I really realized that to some degree, I have some ability and some free will to shape the life that I'm living. So often we think that our life is just something that we receive. But today in this moment, you are creating your future. You are creating your future and the life that you will live three months from now and the choices that you are making today. And so no matter who you are, what you believe, we all believe that we have some ability to shape the life that we're living. But here's the problem this morning. Here's the problem with the fact that we have the ability to shape our life. 
The problem is this, is that we are prone to settle. That's the problem. And I can prove that this way. No, I don't settle. I'm, I, I don't settle. I always go for like the, the most. I'm always trying to improve myself. But I can ask you one question this morning that will prove my point, that you, like me, we are prone to settle in this life. And my question to you is this. Don't answer it out loud. Just answer it to yourself. Are you planning and prepared right now to make this coming week the absolute best week of your life? Like you're doing everything in your power to make this the best week that you've ever had because you could. And right here was the moment in the sermon where I was going to cue a Rocky video up on the screen in the chapel, but I don't have that today. And it was going to be awesome. And he was going to be like hitting, hanging meat and doing sit-ups. And it was going to be like the da na 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 Do you know the Rocky theme song? Sing with me. da na na da na na da na na Okay, so we kind of get the experience, right? It was going to be like that, right? And I was going to say, is this going to be the best week of your marriage ever? Because it could be. Is this going to be the best week of your diet ever? No more burgers. Is this going to be the best week at your job? You're going to crush it at work like never before, and your boss is going to say, what has gotten into you? This could be the week where you're the closest to God. You've never been more in his presence throughout the week. But here's the problem. You're like me, and you probably aren't thinking that way. You're just bumbling into Monday, amen? You're just trying to make it through another week. Because you're like me, and you're settling in life. You're settling for everything that your past has led you to believe that your life should be. And I say that today because that's how we often approach our church experience. We just kind of say, this is how it was in the past, or that church that my grandma took me to growing up, that's what it was like, that's just kind of how church is, and I'm kind of connected to my church, but not really, and that's just kind of the way my church experience is going to be. We're going to kind of be close, because we say things like, yeah, the church is not, the big 90s saying was, the church is not a building, it's a people. People, thank you. My wife was in church, the rest of y'all were not in church, okay? (laughs) The church is not a body, it's a people. People. And we say that, and we know that it's the Sunday school answer, but the question is, that does nothing for you if you don't define what those people mean to you. That's not a deep theological, biblical statement. If all you mean by saying that your church is a people, not a building, if all you mean is that your church is the people that you sit by on Sunday morning in the worship service, if you both happen to be there on that given Sunday, that's not a deep, profound thing. And I think so often we settle in what church should be. We settle for the community when we could build the most amazing community in the world right here in this place. See, the Bible teaches us this, and this is what Paul is going to say this morning. If family, if your church is not like your family, it's not right. If church isn't family, it's not right. If church isn't family, then it's not what God is calling us to create here. And because God is a gracious God and a loving God, and even though me as a pastor, as I'm prone to just settle for what my church experience is like because of everything I've experienced in the past, God is calling me and you into something better. And it's not going to be perfect in this life, but if we're willing to practice 
if we're willing to work at it, if we're willing to love each other, we can make so much progress. I'm not promising you a perfect church experience as a result of this sermon, but I am uh, promising you a much better and more familial church experience as a result of this text. So go back to your scripture, Romans chapter 12. Let's read it again together. Romans 12, and as always, if you don't have a Bible, the sheet that's on your chair has uh, the scripture on the back as well as some of the sermon notes so you can follow along. I couldn't find a way to get the rocket video on the sheet of paper, so I, I didn't do that, but I, I got some of my points, so you cannot be totally lost this morning. Romans 12, 9 through 13. I'm going to read this in, in big, uh, big picture, and then we're going to go literally phrase by phrase and explain what it means. Paul says to the church in Rome, in reference to one another, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Verse 9, the first Verse, Paul says, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Other translations will translate that phrase by saying, let love be without hypocrisy. And this point right here, if if you miss this right here, the rest of the sermon will do nothing for you. I need you to be in here with me right now. I need you to hear what I'm about to say because this is an honest moment. This is the part in the sermon where we're going to open ourselves to everything else that God wants to do in our life today, how he wants to pull us forward and make progress because he loves us. You see, that word discernment simply means um, looking at your life a little bit deeper and getting beyond the surface to the heart. And what Paul is saying here is that progress in love requires discernment. He says, let love be genuine. And the reason why Paul says this is because God doesn't just want us to think that we are loving. God wants you to actually be loving, right? So apparently by Paul saying this, it means that there were some people in the church in Rome who might have thought they were loving or were doing things that might have appeared loving, but in reality, he knew by the Spirit of God that they weren't really loving their community. And I think this is one of the main reasons uh, why marriage can be tough. Because progress in love requires discernment. It requires you to look at your life honestly and evaluate, am I really loving the people around me, right? A lot of times when people come in to talk about their marriage, one of the common problems I find is um, they're both trying really hard to love each other, but they both still feel really unloved, right? Don't raise your hand if you relate with that, every married person in the world, right? But um, any relationship in the world, and it's not that they're not trying, but it, it's funny. When I first got married, I didn't like the, the love languages thing. Raise your hand if you ever read, like, the love languages or you've heard of that book, right? It was, like, Christian, you know, subculture, 90s, you know, stuff Christians like kind of thing. And everyone was really into it. I didn't like it because I was an idiot back then, and I was a kid, and I thought I knew more. Back then, I knew everything, as they say. And um, I didn't like it. I thought it was cheesy. Uh, but as I've gotten older and gotten married, House and I, one of the first things we probably learned in our marriage was how love languages really are important because a good example for us was like, um, I would try to love Halsey by fixing her problems for her. Like she would tell me her problems and I would tell, this is how you fix it. You do this, right? And she didn't feel love like that because women don't want you to, to fix their problems. They want you to what to their problems? Every, see, everybody knows. I didn't know it though. I, I, 
because I didn't, I didn't read the book, you know. I, I thought I knew more. And so um, I was always trying to fix her problems. She, she's like, Johnny, she's a great teacher of this. And, and if, like, just tell your spouse what you want, right? Just, just let them know. Just tell, like, like, black and white. She was like, John, I, I appreciate it. I want you to, like, to listen and empathize with my problems and encourage me. I don't, want, I don't need the five-step plan to make it better, you know. She says, if I, if I need that, I will ask you, give me your five steps. And occasionally she does, but usually she doesn't, right? <laughs> And then, um, but on the other side, I remember for her, like, she would, uh, she would always, like, um, clean the house really well, um, and she still does, but she would clean the bathroom. She put all this work. She would, like, bleach the whole bathtub, which I didn't even know you could do that, that that was a thing that you did, right? Um, to me, the bathroom's the, you know, not, not the super dirty place, but it's kind of dirtier, right? And so to me, a clean bathroom is kind of cool, but, you know, whatever. But she would spend all this time doing this, and I'm like, you know, she's like, she would act like she was doing so much, and I wouldn't even notice it, Right. And eventually we realized that, like, that's just not my love language, right? My love language is more like casseroles, you know, than it is like, you know, <laughs> super clean things. But the problem is, is that we, we think that we're being loving, but love is decided in the eyes of the person who's receiving it. And here's the reality today, and here's what you really have to get. And that, this is for all of us. Don't be offended by this, because I have this in my life, too. We all have relational dysfunction. Every person in this room. There are ways in our lives in which we're not really loving the people around us. And the choice that all of us have to make today is are we going to ignore that reality and just plant our life in our dysfunction? Or are we going to choose our development? Are you going to choose dysfunction and just say, I'm just going to let my life be what it is? Or like Paul says here, are you going to challenge yourself to make progress in love, right? To let your love be genuine and follow these steps he's going to give you to make your love genuine. What happens oftentimes is we, have, we know we have problems like in our church experience. We know maybe we're not as connected as we should be. And instead of choosing our development, we just root ourselves in our dysfunction. All of us have areas in which we need to grow today. Church, don't double down on your dysfunction because you're creating your future right now. One of the examples I love to, to use with this is um, get off my lawn guy. You ever heard of get off my lawn guy? Raise your hand if you've heard of get off my lawn guy. A few people, okay? Get off, I played sports growing up, and so get off my lawn guy was the guy when like, you ran across his yard, he would kind of yell at you and be mean to you. And he didn't understand the wonder and the beauty of kids playing and, and like, you know, us asking to get the, the, the ball out of his backyard because it went over the fence, you know. And he's kind of always upset. And instead of enjoying the fact that there's kids in a future, he's, like, upset because you're messing up his grass and he's yelling at you and all that kind of stuff. And I think for a lot of us, and actually our seniors here at Wydeck are a really great example of not doing this, but there's a tendency as you get older, you know, to maybe become kind of more isolated and even kind of more grumpy, right? There is, okay? And you know that's true, right? I'm different at 29 than I was at 19, you know, because I have two kids. But uh, it's one of those things where, you know, we always joke about get off my lawn guy and we don't want to be that person, but we never ask the question, how does that guy become that guy? And the, the way that guy becomes that guy is back in the day, he created a lifestyle that put him on a trajectory to become get off my lawn guy. Nobody wakes up one day and is like, you know what, I want to have health problems, you know? Nobody wakes up one day and is like, I want to be isolated from people. I want to be lonely, right? No, nobody wakes up one day and says, I want to become get off my lawn guy. But we create lifestyles that put us on the trajectory to get to those places. But God comes in who loves you and is your father. It's like, listen, I want to help you build your life. I want to help you build your future. And specifically in this text, I want to help you build and manufacture your church experience to be everything that it's supposed to be because it can be so amazing if we don't settle. In 1 John 3.16, um, the author writes, By this we know love 
that Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, and that meant the church. So he's saying, I'm going to teach you what love looks like. And so for all of us in this room, we say, okay, listen, I've got areas I need to grow in this. I want to be a better lover of the people around me. I want to serve the people around me more. And so Paul's going to give us some real practical steps here because we're open and willing. Look at verse 10. He goes in probably like the most practical things he could have said. He said, number 10, love one another with brotherly affection. And so what Paul is saying here is to treat your church like family. Why do we need the right theology to live the right way. We need the right mindset and beliefs to live the way that God wants us to live. And this is why when Jesus teaches his followers how to pray, remember Luke 11, Matthew 6, what does he say? To, how does he say to pray to God? What does he say? Pray to him like he's a father. Say it. Like a father. And what's cool about that is he chooses the most intimate, relational, familial concept he could have to explain to them how to pray to God. Because when you see God as your father, not just some distant cosmic deity, right, prayer is a lot easier, isn't it? It makes more sense. And so then when he begins to describe our horizontal relationships, since the vertical concept of father is already taken, right, he uses the most intimate, relational, familial concept that would have been known to them and known to us in saying that in terms of your church and the people around you, treat them like they are your family. Treat them with brotherly affection. So see your church like your family. Let that be the goal in terms of how you're wanting to see them and love them. And so why? If it's not family in here, it's not right. And the aim that we're working towards in everything that we do is to be family as a church, to see each other really as brothers and sisters. He continues on in verse 10. He says, outdo one another in showing honor. Is that how the world normally does things? Is Twitter full of people trying to outdo one another in showing honor? Is cable news in the business of really trying to outdo one another and showing honor? Can you imagine if, that, if a place actually did this? Is your marriage a place where you're trying to outdo one another and showing honor? But man, how beautiful would that look? And what Paul says is, as you treat your church like family, always be letting your church know how much you value them. To honor someone is just as literally say, let them know how valuable they are to you. Realize the value and the worth of those who are gathering with you weekly in your church body. Organize your life and your money and your time in a way that at least somewhat explains to them that you are valuable to me. This is another point in the sermon where I was going to like do an illustration where I was going to point out the sound and slides people, but they're not in here today. So like my whole sermon, it's just like I'm like making it up as I go, right? So I'm, I'm going I'm to do a quick switch, right? I love this. It's kind of like a, a challenge, right? Um, as you know, um, obviously, because we're sitting in here, the AC in the uh, sanctuary went out last night. Um, I actually went to a Texans game, and I, I was checking, like, the temperature on my phone because I was checked to make sure it's good, especially when it's really hot. And because um, we have, like, fancy technology like that. So I'm literally at Reliant checking the AC now. And um, I noticed that in like five hours, we went from 94 to 93. And I was like, that's not a good trajectory for a, for a good uh, worship service. And so uh, my friend Mike and I over here who played bass this morning came up here last night at like 11 and started working on the church. And uh, I texted some guys who uh, were able to come up early this morning and set up chairs and to make this place, which was empty and barren and gross. 
into somewhat of a worship um, atmosphere. But I want to practice something really quick because the whole point of the sermon is that sometimes we don't feel like doing these things, but we just do them, we practice them, and eventually they become genuine. And so um, I'm going to invite the people, If raise your hand if you showed up early this morning to help us set up, right? If you were maybe on the Sunday squad or if you were helping set up. Oh, no, 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 hold on. Don't clap yet. No, no, hold on, hold on, hold on. wait, wait. Keep your hand up. Keep your hand up. Let's give them a standing ovation. Stand up and let's clap for them. They set all this up today. Yeah. Praise God. You can be seated. And doesn't that feel good? Doesn't that feel good? To show each other honor. Thank you, baby. To show each other honor. See, our dysfunction wants us to overlook the value that people bring to us. But our development is the process by which we practice encouragement and a lifestyle of showing the people in our church that I really do love you and I really do honor you. Verse 11. He says, this is an interesting verse, I think. He says, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. And that's interesting, I think, because a lot of times we always associate zeal and spiritual passion as something that can never... Never go wrong, but um, if you read Paul, he actually has a couple of phrases that sound a lot like this. And so the same way how it's possible, I guess, for us to be loving, we think, but not really. I think there are moments in our life where we're zealous and passionate, but maybe we're almost kind of too disorganized in our zealousness and passion that we're not really accomplishing much. So I think what Paul is saying here is that we are supposed to supplement spiritual passion with structure. Supplement spiritual passion with structure. Another way to say that is your passion also needs a plan. Amen, right? Your passion needs a plan. This is not about reducing uh, passion or zeal in your life. This is not about being less passionate. I would never want you to be less passionate in your life. But what it is is saying add the structure in your life. Add the discipline and the self-control to make your passions a reality. And so in the ways that you feel about your church, put in the rhythms into your life that helps you to communicate how much you do love and appreciate the people around you, right? We don't have to pick one or the other, right? We always want to pick either passion or structure and organization, right? And you don't have to pick between the two, okay? And so it's like, it's not like saying, do you want a burger or pizza? It's like both, okay? I want want my pizza in my burger, right? That's what I want. Except no, because I'm making this my best week ever, and so I have a plan, right? But that's a whole different story, right? But we don't have to pick between the two, but that's what we so often do. One of the examples of this is in our church, one of our structures for community is community groups, because we love community and we, we love people, but sometimes we need the rhythm in our week, that one or two hours in our week that enables us to actually get in a room with people and talk about our life, maybe share a meal for a midweek group. We actually pray for each other and hear about what's going on in people's lives, and it's a great experience, and people support us and the things that we're going through. An example of this is um, uh, about six months ago, um, House and I realized um, that there was a, something we wanted to do, but we never got around the time to doing. Um, we always said, you know, whenever we had kids, we would really start doing like a family dinner at the, at the table, right? Because you grow up doing that, and then you move out on your own, and you kind of don't do that. And then, and then you get married, and you think you're going to start doing that, but you're like, oh, we'll wait till we have kids, you know? And uh, we wanted to be organic. We'll sit at the table if we want to and talk and things like that. But we kind of got to the point where we realized that the problem with that is like Netflix has like way too many good, interesting shows, and uh, I don't know if you noticed this, but, like, the, uh, the, the couch is a lot more comfortable than the dinner table, you know. And so you want to get the show on, you get the couch. And, 
And then you feel a lot less convicted when you're checking your phone while you're watching Netflix versus like talking to your spouse at the, the dinner table, you know. And we realize our daughters too, and we don't do that like we want to. And so what we realized in that moment was that like we can get there, but we've got at some point, we've got to choose. That's what we actually want to do. And so we made a decision, right? We didn't wait till we felt like it. We said, okay, this is, we, we want this to be good. And actually, the, the, where, where kind of this came to my mind was I was actually in a community group with somebody. And I was asking them about, like, how, how often do you or your family eat at the table? Like, man, every night, it's just what we do, you know? And it gave me a vision for what it could look like in my family. And so you can ask my wife, six months ago, we started sitting at the table. And at first, I'll be honest, it's kind of weird, you know, because you're just so used to sitting in front of Netflix, right? Blue Bloods is our show. We love Blue Bloods. Raise your hand if you like Blue Bloods. Oh, man, yeah. Love Tom Selleck, right? He's another one like Rocky who always does the right thing, you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. But it's one of those things where I remember we started doing it. At first, it was kind of awkward because our kid can't talk yet because she's too young, and we're just kind of we're not used to, you know, kind of it's quiet at the table, you know? But we started doing it almost every time we could, and by God's grace now, we do it almost every time. And we love it, and it's great, and it's a wonderful time. And so we want to supplement our passion, the things that we want, with the structures that help us actually get there. Let's go to verse 12. He says, Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. And I think what Paul is saying here is that people need your optimism. People need you to trust that God is doing a good work in their life. Like, like people around you, hey, this is kind of, they don't need your negativity. I don't know if you know that, you know. But, like, that doesn't help anybody, right? Um, they, they, they don't need your negativity, but, but they need your optimism. In the early church, there was always persecution. There were things happening. There were ups and downs. It was a lot bigger than the AC going out in the chapel, that's for sure, right? And so he's saying, in light of all that you're going to go through, rejoice in hope. And I love that because, like, it's like a command, right? It's not like he's, like, he's like, do this, okay? It's like, be happy, you know? It's like you're on vacation at Disneyland. It's like, you're going to enjoy this, okay? We're all going to, we're going to have a great time. It's going to be wonderful, you know? Stop arguing, right? He, it's like a command. It's like, rejoice in hope. And sometimes you just practice rejoicing. Sometimes as you practice something, you get better at it. And so what he's saying is people need your optimism, so practice being an eternal optimist. That's what we should be as Christians. It doesn't make sense if we believe that the God of the world has died for us, he rose again, forgave us of our sin, he's renewing us day by day, and we get to go to heaven in the end, okay? If that's your life and that's your faith and that's what you believe, then pessimism doesn't line up with that. Paul says be patient in tribulation because it's it's Okay. And, and one of the things that, man, I just wish, I wish someone would have told me this a, a long time ago. Like, I think a lot of times we think that Christianity means that you've always got to be happy, but that's not what I'm saying right now. I'm not saying you always have to be happy and you have to ignore when really bad things happen in your life. I'm just telling you that, like, we have to always be people who are in hope because no matter what's going on in your life, good things are coming. That's what the Bible teaches. Like, like, you don't have to be happy about how everything's going, but you have to believe that good things are coming. And you have to believe, Romans 8, 28, that God works everything together in your life for good. Nothing will be wasted. Nothing will be wasted. And that's the atmosphere that we have to give off to the people around us. Can you imagine if we're building each other up in our eternal optimism? That's the community people want to step into. And so Paul says, listen, we've all got relational dysfunction. We've all got ways we've got to grow. He says, honor the people in your life. That's how you can really love them. Treat them like your family. That's how you can really love them. 
right? Put the structures in your life to actually get around the people and to love them. Be an optimist around them. Encourage them. Make them happier as a result of your faith. And then in verse 13, he says this, contribute to the needs of the saints. And that word saints just means church, the people that you're in community with. And so what that basically just means is don't let helping others just be talk, right? Let's do things as a church that, that builds each other up because here's the thing, Christians are like these radical people who like we see the world and everything else that we have differently than everybody else. Christians believe that some of the money in our bank account was meant for somebody else. That's how we look at our wellsfargo.com, right? <laughs> That's where I go. We believe that our gifts and our abilities are partially to benefit the life of somebody else. We believe that our homes and our possessions are not just refuges for us, but for other people as well. We believe that some of our time doesn't belong to us. It belongs to the people that are around us. And it's a radical way to view your life and everything you have, but it is absolutely amazing. Why did you do such a great job of this? Um, this is one of the things that, like, you know, it's like we rarely have to talk about things like giving or tithing, and you guys always faithfully give. And I want you to know, even as a way of my own self-practicing honor, I, I know without your generosity, like, we don't have this right now. We don't have this building. We don't have this service. We don't have the baptisms we had last time. Like, literally, everything that you do makes all of this happen. One of the things that's really cool is we, a few weeks ago, and we had a guy come up to us who's a part of our community, real faithful guy. And this is one of the things that a lot of us maybe we'll never relate with, but for some people it's their reality. He came up and was like, you know, I am a few hundred dollars short on my rent. And I, I, my life literally is centering around this reality right now that like if I don't get this last money, I will be kicked out of the place that I live. And as he said that, I thought to myself, you know, there's never been a day in my life where I've thought that maybe I would be booted out of the place that I live and that I love because I don't have enough money. And the beautiful thing was, he wasn't talking to me, he went to another person in the church, that the second that he made that request known, the need vanished. Because we have a benevolence fund here at the church. And some of your money goes consistently to people that come to us and say, I have a legitimate need. And I need help. And I can't do it on my own. And so we contribute to the needs of the saints. And yet, though money is so easy to talk about, the reality is, is that somewhere for all of us in our life, there's an area that we cannot do on our own. It is impossible. And you were built and your life was structured to have to depend on other people. I always point out, literally, you can't be born into this world without other people, right? It is impossible to be born into this world and to not have a family. It's biologically an impossibility. And spiritually, God has designed your life to have to need him and to have to need others. We literally, it's impossible to do it on our own. We had a serve conference this past week where we literally had over 60 people in our church give up their Friday night. They could have been a lot of other places than a church on a Friday night, right? And they showed up to our church to literally learn how they can serve the people of our church better. Contribute to the needs of the saints. And the last one is this, verse 13. Second half of it is this, and seek to show hospitality. And this is one of the points that um, you probably actually need to know a little bit of background to really understand what he's saying here. And uh, I, remember I, I learned this a few years back, but I'd forgotten it, and so I was studying it again this week. 
Um, back in uh, biblical times, traveling was not as affordable as it is today. And we often don't know that, right? There wasn't Airbnb, right? Uh, there wasn't Expedia, you know, where you could get the cheapest hotel, you know, depending on your standards for cleanliness and things like that. And so uh, what happened was is whenever you would travel back in the day, um, hotels or lodging or hostels were only for the wealthy. And so it wasn't like anybody could just afford lodging. And so for the average person, whenever you would travel to a place, so this is written to Rome, so a lot of people would come to Rome. When you would travel somewhere, like most people, if you couldn't afford lodging, and once again, you couldn't do a quick trip, right, because you're on foot or you're on camel or something, you would literally be homeless until you went back after you finished what you came there to do. You would be homeless. And so it's like you go into San Antonio and you can't, uh, you can't, like, you know, when I go to San Antonio, I'm going to have to be homeless until I go back home. Can you imagine that? Like, you go there to register for something or to do a job because you're making money, and you know as you're heading out that when you get there, as long as you're there, you will be living on the streets, or if you're lucky, somewhat of a decently safe place. And so all these people would come to Rome, and a lot of times the church would hook up with each other, the people that shared their faith. And so what Paul was saying is practice hospitality, which that word hospitality translated literally means Practice love for strangers. So the word hospitality means love, but it's a particular kind of love for people that you don't know yet. And so one of the ways we we love the people in our church, and this is such a cool concept, is love the people that you don't know yet. We don't just love our friends. We don't just love the people that we know or that we're close to. We love the people that we don't know yet. And if we don't practice this, we form cliques in the church. Clicks are the result of you only say hi to, you only um, show worth to the people that you know and that you like. And yet what Paul says is literally, have your eyes open to the people in the community that you don't even know yet. Once again, community groups really help us do this because we always change up our groups and you're always meeting new people and you're actually getting to like deeply know somebody new, not just like, you know, water cooler talk, which is cool. Like, I, told, I love small talk, right? That's actually one of the things that's really weird about me. I like small talk. But even more than small talk, I love honest conversations. And sometimes if you're around me, like, I know it's a little bit awkward, but I'll, I'll kind of just ask you, like, so tell me your life story. Like, I, I invite people around, so I'm like, literally, tell me your life story. That's the first thing I say. And a lot of you, like, that's your experience. Like, you met me. The third thing I ever asked you is tell me everything about your life. <laughs> tell me how you got to this place. One of the ways that Halsey and I have tried to, to practice this, and, and sometimes we do it better than others, but usually on any given Friday night, we try to have somebody over. And usually we try to reserve that time for somebody in the church who um, we don't know yet because, you know, we just kind of naturally seem to connect with our best friends. I don't have to work at that a lot. But new people, you have to kind of make a rhythm for it. And so we have new people over, and that's where I get at my table. I'm like, tell me your life story. And they're always like, no one's ever asked me that. That's like kind of weird, you know. When a pastor asks you your life story, it's a little bit intimidating. I understand that. But we want to love people that we don't know yet. And so as we draw to a close, um, really quick, um, many of you know one of the big things we've been talking about um, this semester is, uh, or this month is community groups. And just really quick, I, I want to explain a little bit, because I think for a lot of people it's kind of a, a new concept. And uh, I just want you to know that we don't do Bible studies in the church because we have to, because we don't. Right? We don't get people in small groups and community groups together because, you know, we feel like we can't love Jesus without it. It's not something we feel forced to do or pressured into doing. But we do them because we think that actually literally everything I just talked about gets accomplished in a one- to two-hour window in a community group every week. So let me give you an example really quick. So uh, we want our church to be like family, right? And so we think that groups help make church like family by doing what we call 
numerical reduction, which just basically means that, like, you can't love 180 people in this room. It's really hard. But, man, you get in a room with 7 to 12 people who are all being honest and talking about life and praying for each other, church becomes family really fast. We talked about structure earlier, and community groups provide the necessary structure to practice community. We talked earlier about lifting each other up and encouraging them. Community groups provide a place where everyone is just showing up ready to be encouraged. We talked about contributing to the needs of the saints. You can't help everybody. It's a heavy load to carry. But you can really care for and look out for the 7 to 12 people in your group. We talked about getting to know new people. And we intentionally mix up our groups every semester so that we don't form cliques. So that we're always meeting new people. Community groups help us actually make our church family. It's, it's where we grow in the art of community because it doesn't just naturally happen. As your pastor, man, I just, I just so encourage you to be in a group. And man, even if you're like, I'm so busy, I can't go every week, just sign up and tell us I can be there once a month. I can go every other week. I can commit to that. I believe going to community group and getting in a living room with other believers, talking about your life three times in the fall is better than not doing it at all. And so as we come to a close, I just want to leave you with one more phrase, and it's on your sheet. You can read it there. And it says this, and I think this is the whole point of what Paul says. God has big plans for your church experience. So don't settle. Let's not settle. Let's get more beautiful. Let's get more loving. Let's get more honest. And this community, it really needs a loving, Jesus-centered church because there's a lot of hurting and broken people out there. And when they come here, they're looking for something different. That's why they show up. And if we're honest, literally every person in this room, you're here right now because the world wasn't enough for you. It wasn't enough. You tasted everything the world had to offer. And for some reason, you wanted to come here. And for some reason, if you stuck around, you found something in this place. And we want that for everybody. But it's our vision that there would not be a single person in the Oak Forest Greater Heights community that does not have a community of Jesus that loves them and is helping them grow. And when we get involved in groups and when we open up our lives to people, we're saying, man, I will be there for you. I will receive you. My prayer is that you don't let the next three months just be like the last three months. Let's grow together. Let's lay our lives out together as a community. Let's let our love be genuine. Let's pray. God, I thank you for community. I know for me, it's one of the things that has changed my life every year of my life, God. And Lord, I know that there's a lot of people in this room like myself, and God, I know we're busy, and we're trying to carry our whole life, and we're trying to carry our anxiety and our problems with our two hands, and our hands just feel we're like, I just can't get it all done. But God, will you just remind us today that that's why you're trying to give us 20 hands to carry our life with us, Lord. God, that what you're calling us to here is a blessing. It's the community that we're looking for and that we need, Lord. 
God, help us make wide oak, no matter how big it may get one day. Let it always be family, God. Let it always be true community, Lord, committed to each other, willing to meet the needs of those around us, God. Lord, thank you for showing us your grace in the ways that we've fallen short and for being patient with us, but still calling us forward. Lord, I love this church. I love these people. Thank you that we get to do this together, Lord. Thank you for all the ways that they benefit me as a pastor personally. As you prayed before you were crucified, let us be one. Let us be unified. And let us change the world with your love. We pray all this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.